do we equip our families with a biblical worldview? How do we prepare the next generation for life? How do I grow in my walk with the Lord and in my marriage? If you wrestle with these questions, you are in the right place to find answers. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith podcast. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rutherford, and I'm excited today because I have with me Ken Harrison. He is the volunteer chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers, where he works to inspire men to be bold, faithful, and godly fathers and husbands. He's also the CEO of Waterstone, which helps Christian donors give away $2.5 million weekly for, the, for God's kingdom. And what we're going to talk about today, he is an author uh, of a book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. So we're looking forward to getting into that uh, with him today. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. Now, before we get into the book, and I'll give the whole ti- the whole title here, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World, Live a Life Without Waste, Regret, or Anything Unfinished. I love that title. Would you share a little bit about your background with the audience? Yeah, I started off life as a Los Angeles policeman um, back in, in what people know of as Watts or Compton. And, um, and then after I was went through all the Rodney King stuff and um, was a highly decorated officer. But uh, my uncle, who was very high up on the LAPD, said, look, you know, with all this Rodney King stuff going on, um, I think you'd be better off going and running a company or something. So I did. I went off and uh, started a company and um, grew it really large, then sold it to an international company and uh, ran that company for six years and then retired in 2012, thinking I would spend the rest of my life on me and uh, God had other plans, which I, I sort of go into the book a little bit. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So very wide experience, very, um, really kind of far reaching background in, in not only in your hands on experiences, your work experiences kind of leading up to this until until the Lord had you uh, uh, had you do something a little bit different. So tell us about your book, A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. Well, um, I went through this process when I was 30, where I was hit by a jet ski. And I had faced death many times as a policeman, um, but it was always in adrenaline and gunfights and all that sort of thing. But when I was hit by a jet ski, I was laying on a gurney and the, the doctor walked in and said, look, you've ruptured your liver. So if you've ruptured less than 40% of it, we're going to life flight you out of here and cut it out and you'll live. It'll grow back. If it's more than 40%, you have five hours to live. Have a, have a nice day. And, wow. uh, and I said to the doctor, well, how will I die? He said, what do you mean? You won't have a liver. I said, but what kills me? He said, oh, your body will poison itself to death. So I laid there for an hour wondering if my body was poisoning itself to death and um, thinking, what am I going to say when I see Christ face to face? Like, he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? And I'm going to have nothing to say. He's going to say, who was fed? Whose life was changed? Who got salvation? What suicidal person didn't commit suicide because of you? What drug addict was healed because of you? What prostitute was saved from being trafficked because of you. All I was going to be able to say was, well, I was a really nice Christian. You know, I, I went to church and Bible study and it was nice to my wife and I was a policeman and it didn't sound very convincing. And I, hour later, as that doctor walked back in and said, Hey, good news, bro. Uh, you ruptured your kidney, not your liver. 
you only lacerated your liver. And um, I thought I will never be in this position again. The next time I'm facing death, the next time the airplane's going down or I get terminal cancer or whatever, I'm going to go die with my head held high saying, I'm going to walk into that throne room of the Lord saying, where are my crowns? And so that got me into a deep study of what are crowns? What is the point of life? And I think, you know, for your podcast, particularly, as we try to raise godly kids, I think the question is, why should I be a good Christian? I mean, if Jesus did it all on the cross, and he did, then why should I be good? Why should I give away everything I own? Why should I be loving? Why should I be self-controlled? And those are the questions that I went out and answered in a real way, because, you know, having been in an extreme high crime area and gone through all that and, and also been a Marine and also run international business where I had a, a company with 22,000 employees, um, I saw that that people who are evil don't just wear do-rags and carry guns. They also wear $5,000 suits. So what's the point of life? And that was really the thing that kept me searching scripture for many, many years. I'm 55 now. Um, many, many years to say, why, what is the point of our life as a Christian? Mm. That is an incredible story and, and very, but, but you ask the questions and it's the same questions we all will answer, right? What, you know, when the, it's, it's when you read in Luke and Matthew, the parable uh, of the tenants, you know, what, um, what did you do with what I gave you? Uh, it just happened. You you were in a very life-threatening situation in that moment. But at the same time, we're all, every. if you're listening to this podcast, we don't know if the Lord's going to call us home today or tomorrow or 30 years from now. So that, those are real questions we need to answer. Um, and so as as you're writing this book, who are you writing it for? Who is your audience as, as you know, as in your mind? It's like, I'm speaking specifically to these people. Yeah, this book, that's a great question, is meant to call Christians into discipleship. So, you know, here's the question. If, if Jesus gave the entire salvation message in John 3, 16, if, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish for every eternal life. John 3, 18 says, if you believe in me, you're not condemned. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already because you haven't believed in the name of the one and only Son of God, right? So if that's the gospel message, then what are all the rest of the words about? So you go to Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and you have Jesus take the 12 disciples and he separates from the crowd and he's now only speaking to his disciples. And he's telling them, here's how you become a disciple. And we've misconstrued that in today's church. We've, we've really gotten this poor teaching that is cheap grace as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, it's, it's belief without repentance. So Jesus truly did it. If you believe in him, you are saved. You will not be condemned. However, if you want to have all the joy and the power and the unity that comes from being a son of the most high God, he tells us in Matthew 5 through 7, this is how you do it. And he starts to give a bunch of stuff there that's impossible to keep out, to, to keep unless you're abandoned to him. So he starts off with, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's that? Well, the poor in spirit are those people who realize, I, I bring nothing to my salvation except for the sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, as Jonathan Edwards said. And then he's giving us this whole line. It is, he keeps going, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Why do you why do you mourn? You mourn because you realize you're poor in spirit. There's nothing you can do to save the world. You can't control anybody else's decision. And you begin to mourn the evil that you see all around you as you fall more and more in love with Jesus. And it, it goes on. And I, as we get to the very end, that's the last thing he says. Blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you. Rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. Okay. So once we become holy, our reward is that we won't have any friends. I mean, that's a joke, but we won't be very popular. People on Facebook won't be saying, aren't you so wonderful? People will be saying, how can you dare you say this or that, right? God says rejoice. Why? Great is your reward in heaven. So we're accumulating rewards, and I'll get into that in a little bit later, but for, to answer this question, um, I'm answering Christians, what's the point? Why? should we give all for Christ? Why should we be a part of the church? Because I don't feel like that most of the church today does a very good job of answering that question. And I appreciate that. And that's, I think that reward thing, uh, I say thing, it, but that idea of being rewarded in and for our faith gets like little to no press coverage in our churches. Exactly. It's like, it, it should just be, well, you're, you're, you get to be in heaven, you get to be with Christ, which is obviously bigger than we can understand. But yeah, it's like, there's, there's a lot of good stuff ahead. <laughs> I had a, a theologian whom I greatly respect, who um, called me up and said, Ken, I read your book. And when I saw the title, it made me mad. And I really wanted to disagree with it. I had my pen ready and I went through your book ready to, to tear it apart. And he goes, you completely changed my theology, which is, you know, coming from a theologian and intellectual is the biggest compliment you can get. He said, now I can't stop seeing it everywhere. I look in the Bible. It's all I see. How did I not see this before? Um, Revelation twenty two twelve, the last chapter of the Bible, the Bible is about to end. What are Jesus's words? Behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to each person according to what he's done. He's only rewarding Christians. He's not rewarding non-Christians. They're going to be punished as he had just gotten done saying in Revelation 21, chapter 8. I mean, excuse me, 21, verse 8. So rewards are everywhere, over and over and over. So people are listening to this going, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I don't like what you're saying because we, we, don't, we don't get to salvation by good works. And, and I want to make sure I emphasize that. And I think what nails that home is Ephesians 2, through, 2 8 through 10. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are those verses that everyone's heard a million times. For by grace you're saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest no man should boast. Okay, so we were saved through no effort of our own, and even the faith that we believe in God with was a gift from him. So make sure everyone gets that. Salvation is strictly by God's grace through our faith, and the faith we exercise in him is a gift from him. But the next verse, Ephesians 2, 10 says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now we start to get put on the right path. We were saved by grace, but we were saved for the purpose of doing good works. And God will judge us based on how well we carried out that, that plan. Because it says, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The plan for our life, he laid down at the beginning of time for you and for me and for everyone listening. There's a plan for you to carry out. And he will... He will judge you on that. And the good news is people listen to that. And a lot of times they go, well, man, I don't, I don't run a huge ministry. I wasn't a big city cop. I wasn't, 
I didn't write best-selling books. Not, not that I have, but I mean, you know, other guys are mega church or whatever. I, how, who am I? God has a plan for you to do. He has gifted you to do what he's given you to do. And what he's given you to do may be to raise really godly kids. And there's really not a more noble thing that you can do as a man or woman of God than to raise godly kids, to have a godly marriage. And then it may be, hey, you get really involved in your local community and start getting involved on the school board and say, what are they teaching our kids? And how can I involve myself? So, you're, you know, it's kind of like we're graded on a curve. God's going to, to judge you based on how well you carried out the mission he gave you, not how well you carried out the mission that somebody else did. Because you, Eric, and me, we're never going to be Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham was Billy Graham, and he was gifted to be Billy Graham. Um, I was gifted to be Ken Harrison and nothing more than that. And so I, I want people to hear this and to be encouraged, not discouraged, thinking, well, gosh, I'm not super Christian. He's not asking to be super Christian. He's asking to be super obedient. That's a beautiful description, that being super obedient with what he has given to you. And I think it's important for us to, to remember, for believers to hear, it's it's the works thing is not it's not the the salvation thing, which you clearly said, and I'm just going to reiterate that. So in case somebody had just drifted while they were listening um, <laughs> we, and, and t- start taking things out of context, um, so, right, this is, we're not talking about salvation, right? This is saved by grace through faith. But then for everybody who is saved by grace, then it is that, that, rewards level of hey and now i am going to bless you because of your obedience and so i i think that's important for us to to get a hold of and that the lord has prepared these good works so one question how do we recognize or is it possible to recognize the good works god has prepared for us to do yeah, so Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of starts to put us on the right path on that. And so in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says that if we make our bodies a living sacrifice, and if we're transformed by the word of God and not conformed to this world, then we can know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So say that again. If, we're, if we make our bodies a living sacrifice, if we're transformed by God's word and not conformed to the world, then we'll know God's will. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, Isaiah says, whether you turn to the right or the left, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Well, how do we do all that? Well, that that's, brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is giving us this formula for three chapters. And it's really hard. But he's saying, if you do these things, if you're this man or woman, you will know my will so well. You'll hear me speaking to you. You will hear me directing you. You will naturally become what you want to become. And the last thing is I would, I would throw out Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which says, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Okay, so we continue to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. I remember re- rem- memorizing that verse when I was in my 20s. I think I don't understand that. How do we continue to work out our salvation? Didn't Jesus do everything? Yes, he did. That, that's what he's talking about. You work out your salvation so that, what, in the fear of the Lord, because that's the beginning of wisdom, the Bible tells us. When we do that, we get to the point where he literally changes your desires to be like his desires. The things that you're passionate for are the things that he's passionate for. When someone comes to me and says, you know, I run Promise Keepers. I, I have a lust problem. I, I just can't stop lusting after women. 
Now, the last thing after win, by the way, just for everybody out there, is means wanting what you don't have. It doesn't mean seeing a woman and saying, wow, she's pretty. That's not lusting. Christians live in a lot of false guilt, wringing their hands. It is no, it's not a big deal to see that, but it is a big deal to see and go, well, I wish I had her instead of my wife. That's lusting after a woman, right? But, but Christians will say, I, I spent all my time wishing I had somebody else's wife. Well, the problem is not to try to lust less. The problem is that you need to fall in love with Jesus. Because as you fall in love with Christ, as you live out his, his word, he will change your desires. And literally, the idea of somebody else's wife becomes repulsive to you. And, and I would tell Christians that we, we could go so deep into all this stuff, but I would just say for, for the purpose of keeping the answer manageable, um, the, 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 the way to heaven, the way to a joyful life and rewards is not to try harder, not to try to be a better person. The way to it is to fall in love with Jesus. How do we fall in love with Jesus? The Sermon on the Mount. And that, in many ways, takes some pressure off. Yeah. Right. Because then it's suddenly it's not all the stuff I got to do and, and I can't change my heart. And, you know, it's like like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. It's it's really, as you said, it is falling in love with Jesus. And. But I think people miss that. Yeah. I, I, I do. And, and is it do you think it's because they get distracted they just don't spend the time is it or is it just sort of counterintuitive to everything around us have we just bought into the culture so much that we just say oh it that can't be it you know there's a i could probably preach a whole sermon on that but let me give you a, a something that might really be very helpful um in exodus chapter 11 the Israelites have now camped outside Mount Sinai and God is on the mountain and it's shaking and it's scary. And God gives them the 10 commandments. The first time he gives them again, later Gives them the 10 commandments first time. And then he tells the nation, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. And they go, we don't want to be priests. Moses and Aaron, we want you to go represent us because God's too scary. Immediately after that, God gives them the law. Immediately. The next verse, after rejecting being priests, he gives them the law and says, okay, you don't want to have a relationship with me. I'll give you a bunch of rules that you can't keep. What, did, what happened when Christ died and rose again? He said to Christians, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. And what did we do? We said, no, no, no um, we're going to make a priest that sits in the, the, in the church and I'm going to go confess to him and he'll go between me and God. And we, so we, in our sinful nature, want to live by rules. It's in our nature to say, give me a formula and I'll keep the formula and I'll hold you ob obligated to that formula. God is the master and creator of the whole universe. He doesn't go by formulas and we don't hold him accountable to anything. He has made us some promises. And those promises say, I want to have a relationship with you so intimate that you're like my son or daughter. And that entire relationship is based on only two commands, love me and love each other, period. Those are the rules. Now go work out those rules specific to your life. And let me tell you how you do that. And so that I think helps to answer why it's so hard for us, because we want to keep running back to our sinful nature. If no, just give me the rules, just give me the rules. I want to read the book and I want a bunch of rules. This book is a tough read. Um, it, it's, um, it's an easy read as far as it, there's a lot of really great stories in it, especially from my days in the LAPD and whatnot. But it's a very difficult read because it's all about the fact that the entire formula is falling in love with Christ. And that's really easy and really hard because salvation is a free gift, but it costs you everything. Mm 
And that's hard to get your mind around. It's true. Yeah. And it's like, and I, I think part of that even is as much like you were alluding to earlier, it's we don't see we don't see the rewards, we don't see and have a good feel for the end goal. And therefore we think it is too costly uh to give everything up, you know, mm -hmm. so to speak, which is what we're called to do. And yet that is the very thing that will give us the joy and the relationship with Christ. Uh, that that's the way to do it. We it, it, it it's counterintuitive, and you're right. Our sinful nature just wreaks havoc on what we think is right and wrong, because, like you say, we can't keep all the rules anyway, right? I know I don't want the Lord auditing my life. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to fail that one, like every day. Mm -hmm. um, so I I appreciate that, and I think I think we need to get our minds around that and have that as a reminder. And I, and then in one of the sections in your book is called to a daring faith. So why do, why do we as believers need to understand that we are called to something? It's mm -hmm. not just, you know, we're, we're here, we're saved. We're, we're called, we're called right to do. Why do we really need to, to own that and, and let that be the bedrock of, of how we live? You know, interestingly, the question you just asked is a question that, that is representative of our culture today. Uh, I don't think that believers in the past had to know they were called to something, mm -hmm. but we've, we've so taught here. Here's the basic message of the church that people hear all the time, which is you're a really bad person, Eric. You're really bad, but God loves you anyway. So try not to be bad, but if you're bad, he still loves you. Well, so then your identity is I'm bad right? Your identity becomes in your sin. Is it any reason why we have people struggle so much? Because we've, we keep teaching them inadvertently that you're just a bad person, but you know, smile. Well, that's not true. When you got saved, you became not a bad person. You, you had, had a piece of God put in you the size of a mustard seed. Jesus gives the illustration. That mustard seed can grow into a massive tree that that is a blessing to many people it gives shade to travelers the birds come and rest in its leaves jesus says how big that seed grows now is up to you the spirit will do the work but how yielded are you to the spirit we need to let people know that their identity is as a son or daughter of the most high god not as a sinner i think that is why people need to be told that they're called to something today that's and i like that description and and I, you're absolutely right. It's as unbelievers, we are, we're wicked, right? And all human beings, all of us are affected by sin. Nothing, no part of us hasn't been touched by it, but you're absolutely right. When we, uh, in that moment of salvation, we are declared righteous. And so we continue to sin, but we, we are redeemed, right? We are saved. And you're, that's right, that what you were talking about, finding that identity as that son or daughter, as a saint, not because of who we are, but because that's what God says we are, mm -hmm. what God says that we are. And so I, I, I really appreciate you, you describing that and saying that, because I think we need to hear it. And I agree with, with you in terms of how we too often hear who our identity is as believers. Um, and one thing that struck me too is calling to, 
is that always immediate action or is it sometimes called to wait? How does that fit in? Uh, how does that fit in or does it? It's a great question. Um, we're born in our sinful nature as slaves to Satan and sin, right? So the thing of it is, is the moment we're born, we're hearing two voices in our head. We're hearing ourself, our soul, who we are, our, our own thoughts, and we're hearing the devil. And we're really used to hearing his voice. When we get saved, we now have the ability to hear the Holy Spirit. Hearing the Holy Spirit, though, it takes more work because we're not used to it. The devil's our natural master, right? The devil has two favorite things. The number one is when he speaks to us, he always wants to build up ego, build ourselves up. By, and by doing that, it's through many ways, bitterness, anger, look at the way she looked at you. Who does he think he is to talk to you that way? Whatever. His favorite word is hurry up. You got to hurry. You got to go do it now. You better buy the car right now. Someone else is going to buy it from you. And I'm, so he, his voice brings anxiousness and stress. The voice of the Holy Spirit always glorifies Christ, meaning it always brings our humility. Jesus doesn't tell us to do things that would build ourselves up. He always tells us to do things that would build up others, right? And his favorite word is wait, 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 wait. And it's really hard, especially for someone who's type A like me. I hate that word. But he has a master plan, and we each are a part in that plan. And many times he's working on the hearts of other people. He's doing other things. Sometimes he's working on our hearts. And he'll tell us to go when he's ready. So he always brings calm and peace. And oh, now it's time to go. There's the door. Walk through it. But when we're slamming on doors, that's the voice of the devil. That's the voice of our ego. So you ask a great question. We have to learn to listen to that sweet, soft voice of the Holy Spirit. And we always know when it's him because he's always telling us to glorify somebody else and not ourselves. And his favorite word is wait. And that's a great test right there, right? Is, is that, is it glorifying self? Is it ego? Is it, is it glorifying Christ? Um, and I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I don't like hearing wait, but the Lord has made me wait. Uh, many, many times, and it has been a train wreck when those times when I ignored that, um, basically that, that message, uh, and, and went ahead because I, it was in disobedience. Uh, so I, but I, we need to hear that too, is being called is not always being called to act immediately. Sometimes it's, it's a preparing, sometimes it's, uh, uh, a growing and being on alert, so that when the time is right, he can, he opens the doors. Mm -hmm. I think a great example of that, I mean, if I can bring up a person's name is, yeah. you know, my friends, John and Lisa Bevere. Um, John, famous pastor, wrote lots of best-selling books. Um, amazing man of God, had a lot to say. Lisa, housewife. She raised four amazing boys. Addison, uh, it, it, he, I've discipled Addison for years, and he, I get as much from him as he as he gives as I give to him. And um, those boys she raised are absolute godly young men. Now, I think she sells more books than John does. You know, <laughs> Lisa is lighting the world on fire. But Lisa didn't get going until she was in her late forties. So we we don't need to be in a hurry. God will give us what we need when we need it. And, and God gave Lisa the, the wisdom and the godliness she needed when he was ready for her to begin going from raising boys 
to becoming a best-selling author. You know, for me, I, I get emails all the time. And I got one from a guy yesterday who was really frustrated. He named off my friends and me, you know, all well-known people. And, you know, I, I, I hate, you know, I feel like I'm on the JV and you guys are on the varsity. I'm like, hey, calm down, man. I said, no one ever heard of me until I was in my 50s. God didn't call me when I was in my 30s or 40s. I told my sons, you know, they, we want to we be like you, dad. I go, I wasn't me when I was your age. I mean, now that I'm old. Wisdom and scars and life and doing things and being bold and being persecuted and all those things have given me a level of wisdom to make me who I am now. But you at 24 years old, you until you've had kids, until you sat in the emergency room crying out to God that they won't die of asthma or die from the head, they, the, the knock they took on the head or whatever, you, you have no idea what it's like. Um, so there are things and, and knocks we take in life that put us in a position now. It's funny, you know, I've always been, you know, the LAPD thing and, and physical and, and you know, well-built and all those things. And at 55 years old, I'm, I'm not like I was, you know. And uh, one of my sons who's, you know, they're studs, you know, they're all just crazy one was a college wrestler and uh i said dad you know at what point were you okay not being physically superior anymore and i said you know at some point in life you accumulate enough wisdom to where i'd rather give orders to guys like you than be the one doing it you know god equips you where you need to be right <laughs> and so um i don't want to be the strong physical guy running around anymore I want to be the guy sitting on my couch giving orders to guys who are dumb enough to do those things, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> that is the wise and smart thing to do, right? But, right. but, but, but it takes all of it, like you say, it takes all of those years and all of the mm -hmm. the hard stuff, um, and and to to get to that point. And I know the Lord has definitely humbled me over the years, and I look back and think, man, I was an idiot. Um, yes. But, but. I didn't know that then, you know, I had to go through all this stuff um, to, to get to now. And, and I pray that I am, I use the wisdom that I have gained. I still have a lot to go, but I at least feel like I've gained some by his grace, but yeah, it was not overnight uh, in doing that. And so you asked about waiting and it's interesting. Just think about the Bible for a minute. Let's take two of our biggest heroes. Abraham and, and Moses, right? Moses was 80 before he did anything. 80. So at 40, Moses has been raised in Pharaoh's household. He's been given the best education, trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He's a stud. He goes out, he feels God's call on his life. But God has, what's God saying? He's saying, wait, Moses, we're not ready. Moses is tired of waiting. 40 years old. He goes out and he beats a man to death. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was incredibly well-trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat as a son of a pharaoh. He thinks he's going to start a revolution. He goes out the next day thinking they're all going to rally around him, and they tell him to get lost. So Moses runs out into the desert, and when he runs out to the desert, what happens? He goes out to a well, and there's some young girls there getting water, and some land pirates come out, and they're going to you know, do God knows what to these girls. And Moses walks up and kicks the butts of all of them. I mean, Moses is a bad dude. The girls run home to Jethro, their dad, and go, hey, this Egyptian guy just saved us, crushed all these guys. He's like, well, okay, we live out here in the middle of nowhere. Go find that guy. I need a husband for one of my daughters, you know. So Moses now ends up herding sheep for 40 years for his father-in-law, Jethro. There's not a lower position in the ancient culture than being a sheep herder, which Moses was. Now imagine he's 79 years old, and he's trying to tell his son, who's now 35, 
you know, your dad used to be a, a big man. You know, your dad was a stud. And yeah, yeah, dad, we've heard it all before. You've just smelled like sheep my entire life. Right. And then at 80, God shows up and he says, Moses, he goes on for two chapters. I'm going to do all these great things through you, this and that and the other. Everything that the 40-year-old Moses wanted to hear, he now hears at 80. Now he has enough wisdom. What's his answer to God? Pick somebody else. That's his answer. God gets upset. Now Moses is ready to become maybe the greatest man who ever, well, Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man, but one of the greatest men to ever live. Same with Abraham, 72 years old before God calls him. He's called Abraham. It's his, it's, he's called Abram. It's his little kid name. He hasn't gotten his big boy name yet because he has no kids at 72. God gives him a promise and then makes him wait another 20 plus years before he fulfills the promise. Again, what's God's favorite word? Wait. I'm doing things in my time. Moses, wait, you didn't wait. Now you got to go walk around the desert for 40 years until you figure it out. Abraham, wait, you're still obeying me, but I'm still going to make you wait over 20 years. If we were patient and understood that God's working on us, and I'm telling you, one of the things he's always working on, all every one of us is humility. Every one of us, any little part of us that thinks that we bring anything to God needs to be drowned out of us. It needs to be beaten out. And sometimes, you know, we're more humble than others. There are times when we wake up and old bitternesses, old memories, old whatever come up out of us. He's always purging that out of us because he needs us to know, as we start off this interview talking about, the end result of holiness will be that we will be persecuted. And it will be that people will say all kinds of evil things against us. And we will be rewarded. He says, rejoice when that happens because you finally made it, man. Mm -hmm. You're holy. Now, now you're getting somewhere. Mm, indeed. Indeed. And that is a day that, that we look forward to with great hope and anticipation. Man, so as, as we wrap up here, if people want to know more about you, more about your book, where would you like them to go? Uh, my website is Ken R. Harrison and um dot com and you have to put the r in there because some guy took the ken harrison doesn't have a website but he won't sell me the domain so <laughs> oh no i think he wanted 100 grand I'm like nah uh, so uh it's ken r .com. also promisekeepers.org um has all the promise keeper stuff we've had a lot of huge events we had 1.4 million people across the world watch our, our global event you can get on there and, and see Great programs we put on sexual uh, integrity, um, on mental health, and all kinds of things, on marriage, on leadership. Um, so that's promisekeepers.org. And then the book, um, the book came out about five weeks ago. It's it's really selling extremely well. And you can get that out all your usual places on Amazon. And I would just say to your listeners, if you get the book, um, especially if it's on Amazon, leave a review. It's very helpful. The more Christians that leave reviews, um, it, the better it is. So those three. Excellent. Excellent. So KenRHarrison.com, PromiseKeepers.org, and the book, uh, the book title is A Daring Faith in a Cowardly World. We're going to put all that information in the show notes. Uh, make sure to check it out and leave a review when you get the book. Ken, it's been a, a joy today, and uh, I've learned a ton. I know the audience uh, will enjoy this as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. If you found this episode helpful, please leave a review for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Doing so will help others to find us. Uh, check out the show notes for resource information. We encourage you to do that for links and other references. 
We'd like to hear from you so you can message us your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, and Entrusting the Faith. You can email us at info at entrustingthefaith.com. If you go to our website, which is www.entrustingthefaith.com, you can sign up to our email list and receive free resources as well as upcoming podcast episode information. So check it out. Lastly, just remember, legacies are built a day at a time. So start now.